Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. So we continue our series in the second half of American history with our 13th episode. In the 12th episode, we reviewed the American political system, which may have surprised some listeners that it really was a, a form of entertainment in the years before widespread publishing availability and radios and televisions and smartphones, et cetera, and the internet, that it really was a time, election years, that many Americans look forward to. We also examined why the equal ability to vote evolved so slowly in America's history, the difference between open and closed primaries, the role and impact of third party, uh, third political parties, challenging the established two-party system of Democrats and Republicans, at least through the 20th century. And then we began our conversation looking at of the various parts of the federal government that the average person sees in the news on a regular basis by starting with the presidency, by distinguishing between the president, which is the human being, and the presidency, which is the office that our founding fathers created in our constitution and then impacted by certain subsequent amendments. So today in the 13th podcast, we're going to continue with our discussion of the American presidency as we bring it into the 20th century, where I attempt to elaborate on a lot of the aspects that the average person sees in newspapers and on TV and hears over the radio. The office itself from the time period of our 17th president, Andrew Johnson, all the way through President Howard Taft, our 27th president, by and large was a reactive office. It was more reminiscent of our presidents from number seven, Andrew Jackson, through number 15, James Buchanan. When I say it was more of a reactive office, it's not that that was the job or the intent of the occupant holder, in other words, the president himself. Rather, Americans looked to our president as somebody that we will call on if we need them. But other than that, if they don't mind just staying at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue while America goes about its daily business and to stay out of our hair, and again, we'll call you if we need you, that changed permanently with the rise of our 28th president, the election of our 28th president, that of none other than Woodrow Wilson, our only president to date to hold a PhD. President Wilson came into office, again, expecting that the office wouldn't do much different than his, his more immediate predecessors. However, with Wilson, America would go on to the world stage due to events that we directly had no control over. And of course, that, of course, I mean, speaking is World War I, which we'll definitely examine in far more detail in future podcasts. But Wilson, if he was going to commit American soldiers to the ground 
in a European conflict, then he couldn't have done it with the existing powers that be that were allotted to him in the Constitution and were expected of him by the constituents, by the American public. So he had to more or less reinterpret how the presidency was going to run if he was going to try to conduct part of the war effort. <coughs> Excuse me. So that said, Wilson leaves office with the office of the presidency far more large, should say far larger and stronger than it clearly was when he arrived in office. And this is what political scientists and historians and journalists call the expansion or contraction of the office of the president. In other words, when the president comes in and has to handle any number of domestic or international crises, do they handle it by following the letter to the law of what the Constitution says that the president can do and the subsequent amendments elaborate on? On the surface, a president seems like that that's was something that he, or eventually a she, would want to do. In fact, the average American would, off the cuff, say, no, they really want a president to read the lines of the Constitution and don't deviate from that. But the fact of the matter is the American public throughout our history has actually rewarded presidents that leave the office stronger than when they arrived in it. In other words, they might have followed the Constitution line by line, but they also read between the lines. They interpreted what wasn't there. And if you don't believe me that we're, we reward presidents that do that, where in the Constitution, when it was written or all the way to, through to today, does it say that the President of the United States can acquire territory that's not ours. Yet look at Thomas Jefferson, who's continually ranked in the top five with the Louisiana Purchase, did that with absolutely no constitutional authorization. And the Democrats at the time, the Federalists in Congress, immediately started drawing up articles of impeachment that the president of power overreach, a power grab, except that the public was so elated there was so much euphoria in the fact that the size of the United States was doubled west of the Mississippi River that the Federalists realized that the chances of impeachment would actually backfire, and they let it go. We rewarded President Jefferson for take, taking an action that the Constitution didn't specifically say he could do. Ironically enough, look at the top three American presidents throughout, throughout our history, and who continually are the top three. Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Franklin Roosevelt. Yet name me the three presidents who have trampled America's rights more than any other president. Give me the top three. You're actually going to name the same three presidents, Washington, Lincoln, and Roosevelt, FDR. To the point, as I may have said before, that when asked, you know, wouldn't it be great to live in an era where we have a great president, like one of the top three. No, I really don't. I want an average president because the common denominator between Washington, Lincoln, and Franklin Roosevelt is that the country was truly under siege. There was one or more major, major crises. 
So when we look at, again, why a president is ranked higher or lower than another president, it generally boils down to the interpretation of how the president left office compared to when he walked into office. And that's what, again, we mean by the expansion or contraction of the office of the president. I would also be remiss, and I get more and more disappointed when I look at some political science textbooks and American history textbooks that talk about the power and the influence of the president and all the uh, lovers of power that are available to him and how many of them skip over the impact of the role of America's first ladies. And it's not something that I'm going to elaborate too heavily here, as I do plan on giving podcasts on the first ladies at a later date. But the just in a quick overview, just to see how important the first lady's impact has been throughout America's history. Anytime that America or people from another country around the world, in other words, see a president of the United States entering a banquet hall or entering a state dinner in the East Wing of the White House, the president comes in to a song that more or less sounds kind of like pomp and circumstance called Hail to the Chief. If you really listen to Hail to the Chief, it, it is a melody that's only about a minute long, but by and large, really isn't easy on the ears. And that's because it wasn't written for that kind of decorum of an entering president or of the United States or any other head of state. The actual melody of Hail to the Chief comes from a Scottish drinking song. But the reason why the president enters with that melody that some presidents after they left office have kiddingly said, if they hear that tune for at least the next year, they're going to kill somebody because they're just, they've, they've kind of had it with it. it. It's a tune, as I said, that can be hard on the ears for many people. But it was uh, President Polk's wife, Sarah, who was livid at the number of times that her husband, as president of the United States, would walk in to a party, a banquet, or a meeting. And so many people, because again, there's no television, there's no newspapers with color photos, so very few people know what a president looks like prior to the 20th, happened to the press in the 20th century, would mistaken the president, James Knox Polk, for an aide or a butler or an advisor rather than the president himself. And he'd go along with it, but it just drove his wife nuts. And that's why she started the tradition, which of course still exists all the way to, through modern times, that when her husband walked into a room, doggone it, everybody was going to know it. Hopefully out of respect, everybody would stand. It is not required, but they would stand. And that tune played by the Marine Band would play Hail to the Chief as the president came in. After that first time, nobody after that ever mistaken President Polk or any future president for anybody other than who he was. In terms of power and influence, again, not to diminish what Polk had contributed, and minor, mind you, I, this, as I say, these could be separate podcasts on these, the impact of these wonderful women. But just again, to keep it in a nutshell here for this podcast, Edith Wilson is another one that is often looked over in the United States throughout our history, but she was one that truly ran the presidency because of the stroke that, he, that her husband had endured when he was campaigning for the American entry into the League of Nations. For the remainder of his many months in office, well over a year, Edith Wilson 
truly was running the country. And if you don't believe me, you can ask New Mexico Senator who stood one time waiting for the meeting to begin. And when Edith Wilson came in and said, I'm sorry, once again, my husband is not available, so I'm going to more or less take notes of the meeting for him. Senator Albert Fall stood up, pounded his fist into the desk and said, where is the president of the United States? Because for all intents and purposes, Mrs. Wilson is president of the United States. She didn't let it phase her at all. She just sat down, waited for him to get his tirade over, and started the meeting. And to her credit, despite the fact that at some time she may have disagreed with her husband, she never put her policy or viewpoint over his, despite how crippled he truly was in the immediate months after the stroke. A podcast by itself could be allocated to Eleanor Roosevelt who because of her husband's incapacity to be able to get around and ambulate normally because of being stricken with polio back in 1921, Eleanor Roosevelt was the eyes and ears for her husband as he attempted to try to ram through many different measures and acts of domestic reform to handle the Great Depression that he had inherited from his predecessor, Betty Ford. While not necessarily impacting policy, the fact that she came forward publicly with uh, her diagnosis of breast cancer and addiction to alcohol, that removed the, the albatross around the neck of women and wives and mothers throughout the United States that it's okay to talk about these things. It's nothing to be ashamed of. Come forward with it, and that's part of how the healing begins. Nancy Reagan is another one that impacted her husband. In the, to the point, however, one could argue that it was more of a negative impact because when she almost lost her husband, Ronald Reagan, in the assassination attempt on March 30th, 1981 by John Hinckley, after that, she was so afraid that her, president, that her husband could be killed, shot at it again or killed through another means that yes, she actually consulted an astrologer which impacted what the president did on a daily basis. And it drove many individuals from the White House. If again, you don't believe me on that, just look at the memoir of the former Secretary of the Treasury under Reagan and his chief of staff, Donald Regan, R-E-G-A-N. And you can read in his biography just how problematic Nancy Reagan's constant commitment to consulting an astrologer before the president embarked on anything of importance, really had a negative impact on the administration. In terms of the president, when I mention a U.S. president, especially for my domestic listeners, and I was or to ask you to picture the president, the structure that often is associated with him is that, of course, of the president's mansion, even though it is not necessarily his directly. And that, of course, what I mean is the term the White House. The White House, the structure at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, that structure has had several terms for it throughout the throughout the 200 plus years that the house has been in existence and the home of an American president. First off, just to dispel the myth that if and when an individual is elected president, he does not have to live at the White House. He can choose to live elsewhere. However, it would be so costly to the American public 
for him to try to live somewhere other than the White House because of the cost of his security, which is on the taxpayer's dollar. So because of that, it is simply safer and far easier for the president to simply go, go up a set of stairs or an elevator ride up to the executive mansion, which is what the floor is designated as that the president and his family live on. That's the floor that individuals do not go up unless you are truly of a high, high up the totem pole within the American president, within the president's inner circle. It really is a way for the president and his family to let down, to be able to unwind from the day. The president, the, the White House, starting in 1830, 1829 with the election of our seventh president, Andrew Jackson, was called the executive mansion prior to that. However, Andrew Jackson, who was not one at all to have pomp and circumstance in his name, his title, or his demeanor, abhorred that idea. Because as he said, it is American taxpayers that pay, that ta pay for it. It is the people's house. And it was referred to as the People's House or the People's Mansion for decades. It was Teddy Roosevelt who half-kiddingly referred to the building that he lives in as the White House simply because of the color. But once that was said, it, the press ran with it. And that's the term by and large that we still use today more than any other is the White House. To the point that if you've ever seen or had the opportunity to receive an actual piece of correspondence, not only from the White House, but from the president himself, of which I have one of them. I have one letter, and no, it was not written to me, but it was written to my uncle, who upon his anniversary as a Jesuit, was sent a letter to him by President Bill Clinton, and is ornate and gaudy as we could want to create the letterhead for the president of the United States. The actual letterhead is so simple and so elegant in its simplicity because at the top, all it says is the White House with an image of the White House above it. That's it. No embroidery, no stamping or any other way, just the White House. Again, it's, it's the simplicity in its, in its elegance or the elegance of simplicity, as they say. So prior to the 1930s, the White House was always open to the public. That tradition was started by a president, our only president to date, who never even not lived in the White House, never even stepped foot in it, because it wasn't done by the time he left office, much less when he died. And that, of course, is our first president, George Washington. Washington set the precedent or the example that despite the how much work he has to do in a given day, that sometime between the hours of 12 noon and 3 in the afternoon would be set aside for the public to be able to come in and speak with the president directly. As ridiculous as this sounds and may be counterintuitive to executive efficiency, if you look at it from Washington's standpoint, it actually benefited, he benefited far more than he lost. The reason being is because he also set an example to say no to any personal invitation for the president to go to a restaurant, to come to a residence for coffee, breakfast, dinner, you name it. The answer was always no. The president didn't want to be seen as favoring anybody. So rather than have the 
to get railroaded with his calendar by being committed to going to this person's house tonight, that person's house tomorrow morning. Nope, equal the playing field by simply allowing people to come in and see the president during a designated set of set time. Can you imagine that, listeners, that if I wanted to speak to the president of the United States, I could wait in line at the White House and simply walk right in, wait in the Oval Chamber to see him. Amazing. And the fact also that it, that, that tradition stood all the way to the 1930s. Under Franklin Roosevelt, he had to reluctantly agree that because of the Great Depression that was not stopping and the looming World War, which would have been a second world war that seemed to be on the horizon, that he simply had no, no longer had the time or the physical stamina to continue to greet people one after another to the White House. When the President of the United States, when, the, when we get to the eventual age of the telephone, if you ever speak to a President of the United States or if you ever have spoken to him, you would know that you never picked up the phone with the president already on there. Rather, the White House calls, when you answer the phone, they generally do not ask, are you available to take a call from the, for the president? Now, it's please hold for the president. It's not a question. Then the president picks up and has the conversation. It is true that the president has his own zip code. That truly, if you knew the current president, President Biden, if you knew the zip code allocated or assigned to him, you literally could mail him something with just those five numbers. Now, of course, it would get nowhere near him, not because of the fact that you only use the five numbers, but it's because of the fact you were not respectful in trying to send written correspondence to him. Where is the appropriate title, the address, your return label, address, etc.? All of that would have to be on there, but truly he does have his own zip code. Because of the reputation and the prominence of the White House, as well as in things like the motorcade, the presidential limousine, and Air Force One, both of which I'll talk about in a moment, because of the prominence of those things on the American psyche, and in some cases on people throughout the world, the president is not allowed to do any campaign business from the Oval Office anywhere in the White House or in on the president on the presidential plane or in the limousine, because that gives the incumbent an edge that a challenger could never hope to have. So because of that, it is the the White House does have a reputation and the prominence of tool of intimidation for the president. Many presidents were told no by members of Congress or individuals on the Supreme Court until the president invited them over to speak with them at the White House in the Oval Office. It's amazing how much more agreeable people can have when they are awed as they walk in to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Along that line of Air Force One, please note that that actual term Air Force One does not exist. And before you think that I have something other than uh, water in my coffee mug here, that maybe it's vodka or something stronger, if that's the case, where's the bottle? Why am I always the last one to find it? No, the Air Force One, when the president is in the White House, those massive planes, there's always two of them identical to one another. SAM 29000 is the current one and SAM 29001. When the president 
is at the in the in the White House or is on the ground is anywhere other than those planes, then Air Force One doesn't exist. Air Force One only exists when the president actually gets on board. The reason being is because President Dwight Eisenhower, when he was flying in to Tallahassee International Airport, of course, in Florida, as his pilot, Colonel Bill Draper, was beginning to come in for the landing, he called through his speaker, through, through his, uh, his mic, his headset, that the Columbine with the last, with the numbers, was, a, was requesting the, the ability to land. The air traffic controller gave him permission, but at the same time, a, a Pan Am flight was coming in by the exact same four numbers. That pilot also took it as the clearance to land and assumed that he just didn't hear Pan Am, but he heard the number, so therefore he took it as the right to land. It was a genuine, honest mistake, but one that could have cost a president his life. Because of that, when the, after the president conducted his business and got back on board, when Colonel Draper took off, he let the air traffic control tower individuals know all the way back to Washington, D.C., as they go from one flight space to another, that he will be referred to because it is a plane technically owned by the Air Force that it is known as Air Force with the number one. Once that, of course, was used and heard and printed in the press, the title stuck, and we have it to this day. But once the president is off of that plane, again, it is no longer Air Force One. It would be back to SAM 29000, SAM stand, which stands for Strategic Air Mission. But it is owned, operated, and maintained by the Air Force, there are many times when presidents of the United States will fly into a particular location. You will see what we assume is Air Force One, and the president actually is not on there. He might be in one of the Air Force cargo planes, a C-130 or a C-5 Galaxy. He could be coming in on a jet plane, as George W. Bush did. Technically, when George W. Bush landed on that aircraft carrier in an Air Force plane, that was Air Force One. Only the Secret Service, of course, knows where the president is at any given time. But because of that point, the truth to the Air Force One not existing when the president isn't on there, it's not a play on words that occasionally when I'm giving lectures on the presidency throughout Northeast Ohio, when I ask the uh, audience, after I explain it the way I've just done here, when I ask the audience, knowing this now, what is the time, when was the time that Air Force One never landed, but it took off? Air Force One was cleared to land, but to date, that flight has never landed, and it never will. And that would have been the morning or the afternoon by that point of August 9th, 1974, when Richard Nixon left as President of the United States, and Air Force One took off. While in the air, his successor, soon-to-be successor, Vice President Gerald Ford, once he took the oath of office, and then it was confirmed by two different people, the pilots on Air Force One reverted back to Strategic Air Mission, which at that time was SAM 27,000. 
So knowing this, one was Air Force One never cleared to take off, but actually cleared to land. If you want to put it on pause here, that's fine, of course. For those of you listening right through, that would have been the early morning hours of November 23rd, 1963, when Vice President Lyndon Johnson took the oath of office as the 36th President of the United States. And when he did, Air Force Two became Air Force One. The plane that we see today, please note that there are two more that are just in the finishing stages of being uh, completed. These will be Air Forces One, what would become Air Force One and Air Force Two will be Strategic Air Mission 30,000 and 30,001. Finally, just to, to talk about some things we see in the press when we talk about the American presidency would of course be what's called the beast which we see the president more in his presidential limousine when he's out of the White House by far than we ever see on the presidential plane. And the beast is that 16,000 pound Cadillac that for actual cost is thought to be upwards of $300,000 for an automobile that truly is a mobile bomb-proof shelter. Bomb-proof to the point that we don't know exactly just how much of an impact that limousine can take before it would be considered destroyed or even breached. It is only Hollywood lore when a president is in the limousine and he hears people yelling his name out the window and he turns and waves would be impossible in the modern Cadillac limousine. Because once the doors to the Cadillac are closed, doors that are heavier than the passenger plane doors on a 747, that limousine is 100% air and soundproof. There is no noise coming from the outside. For this reason, Secret Service agents, only a few of them, actually have the ability and the clearance to drive the presidential limousine. Driving a vehicle that, again, weighs just over eight tons does not handle the way a traditional Cadillac would handle or even the traditional Cadillac limousine. Just how far different is this Cadillac limousine to handle? Well, a way to answer that would be to tell you what the final exam is or one of the elements of the final exam that a Secret Service agent has to follow when he gives the clearance to actually drive the Cadillac limousine. And that's what we'll begin with in the next podcast. So thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com. Always feel free to email me with any questions that you might have. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Thank you.